job well folks welcome back to michael and us uh i'm luke savage and i'm will sloan we yeah. reversed the order on yeah that, i decided yeah. to yeah we're take we're... charge for once <laughs> <laughs> we're doing things a little on the fly today i don't know how how are things with you oh uh, fine <laughs> how are things with you uh, pretty good uh, i'm just i'm nursing a crippling addiction to red dead redemption 2 but i'm enjoying it i've been suffering from sciatica uh <laughs> similar afflictions i'm sure <laughs> Uh, what is Red Dead Redemption exactly? I hear people <laughs> describing it a lot. You know what it is. You've seen me playing I'm it. playing dumb for the <laughs> listeners. Oh, I see. Sorry, I'm still kind of new at this podcasting thing. Um, well, Red Dead Redemption 2 is the sequel to Red Dead Redemption 1, the classic from Rockstar Games. Came out in October. Um, trying to transition to serious now so I can actually answer the question. I'm not like a big gamer. Am I, I don't know what your relationship to video games is. I mean, I guess we've played Mario Kart. Ever before. since they went to 3D, I was lost. I liked it when you went in just one direction and you you were you were Mario and you jumped on the turtles or whatever a, they were. It was a simpler time. I'm not a serial gamer, but every few years, like I'll get really into a game and I'll play it for a couple months and then I won't pick up a controller again for another few years. Um, so like some years ago, I played GTA V and uh, I don't know, I, I started playing Red Dead Redemption 1 years, years late, I think, because the second one came out and everyone was talking about it, really enjoyed it, picked up the second one and gotta say, I've been having a really great time. You know, it's just a full-blown Western with this huge interactive world and all these kind of little side quests and it's free roam. The story's actually kind of compelling. My hot take on it for those familiar with the story is that... Uh, I think Dutch is a bad leader. I think that's kind of the flaw in in the plot. If you haven't played the game, you've no idea what I was ta- I'm talking about. But uh... not at all. You know, I'm not I'm not really interested in the games themselves. But gaming has provided me with a community, a, a world of like minded people who have who have. Let, let's say, have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? You remember the scene where he takes the red pill? Well, that's kind of what's happened to me as a gamer. It's like I, I've kind of from hearing you know interesting things from the community. I've I've seen things the way they really are. You yeah. Know? You've, you've become woke. Yeah. <laughs> Will, Will, I mean, Will says that he's not into gaming, although uh, to, not to dox you on this, but when I was playing Red Dead Redemption 2 the other day, you seemed pretty amused when I uh, when I last sued that guy and tried to put him on the railroad tracks. He got away in the end. But... You spent about like... Well, we're... And I did too. Like we were in it <laughs> together. Right. You were... It takes two to tango. You were only the controller though, so I want to give you the appropriate credit. <laughs> you were trying to last him and keep him stuck on the railroad for eventually when the train would come and we could well, watch the, the, the trouble is the game is so realistic that the, the train maintains like a regular schedule. Yeah. And so the the, the train from Amnesburg never, never arrived, didn't have the schedule. So... Uh... Oh, well, what, the last game I ever really loved was GoldenEye 64. Oh, and, that's a classic. Yeah, I, and I, I would just take any opportunity to be horribly sadistic in that game. And, uh, and you probably played his odd job all the time. You're probably one of those people. Uh, no, I played as James Bond. <laughs> Why would you want to not be James Bond? Because odd job has a smaller hitbox, so he's a lot harder to hit. The, the <laughs> odd job was like, that was the little brother. That was the character invented for the little brother to play as. Uh, right, okay. And I guess things. you're an only child, so you didn't have a little brother to make, right. play as odd job. You're right. I just I basically just played with myself. Have you ever played Mario Party by yourself? It's a very lonely experience. Yeah, that's that's dark. <laughs> Uh, speaking of culture, uh, you were telling me, because this is like a politics slash culture speaking podcast. Speaking of culture. Yeah. Uh, we've got some pipe and hot takes coming up about the 2008 film Cloverfield. <laughs> which I watched which recently. You just watched. Why, why at this late date, Cloverfield? My girlfriend likes monster movies. That's the only reason. And, and we, I mean, neither of us knew anything about it, but we knew that there would be a monster smashing things down. And so we, we decided to give it a try. You know, sometimes... I don't know, sometimes you just need something to watch. It wasn't very good. I mean, it's not really so much about monsters, is it? It's about these kind of like annoying hipster people. It's like, what if you were a hipster one day, you know, an upper middle class, you know, like not a Brooklyn hipster, but a Manhattan hipster, you know, and, and it all it all got interrupted. Like the day after you went to Coney Island, it all went wrong. And you were compulsively unable to put down your camera. Yeah, to, to for, for, like, for, for like 15 hours. Well, I remember in the weeks following 9-11, people were asking, well, will we ever be able to watch disaster movies again? Will we ever be able to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger defeat the terrorists again? He was popular at the time. Well, and they, and they uh, didn't they 
they didn't cancel collateral damage, but didn't they like take it out of theaters? They or delayed it for I think six months right, or so. Right. Cloverfield is what, two thousand seven? Yeah, two thousand eight. I mean Cloverfield is is a nine eleven movie, right? I mean it's it's a movie about being in New York and having something catastrophic happening that you don't really understand, except that in this case, it's a monster. Is it a political film, would you say, being a 9-11 film? Not really. It's, I mean, it's a political film in as much as it's an apolitical film, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's no politics to the monster. In, in the way that I think the initial, you know, the, the sort of political introspection around 9-11, it took a while for anything to happen, right? I mean, those first few weeks... It was just people processing trauma, and it was just a a lot of very kind of -of run-of-the-mill nationalism. I remember some paper in Canada, it might have been just like the Beacon Herald in Stratford, they had a centerfold that just had the stars and stripes and she said god bless america and a lot of people cut it out and put put it in their windows it was that that kind of thing and cloverfield doesn't really you know move beyond that it's like uh rain over me plus godzilla you know <laughs> the first kind of blockbuster that i remember being a real 9-11 blockbuster was war of the worlds the steven spielberg one Did oh you yeah I, I actually haven't movies? seen it it's quite an unpleasant viewing experience i yeah. seem to recall it's very much like tapping into those feelings of dread and confusion and trauma and I remember thinking at the time, and I think I also think about Cloverfield, how strange it was that having gone through this trauma, America eventually came to the point of wanting to almost like relive it through these movies. Yeah, there's certainly a bit of that to Cloverfield. Uh, I mean, so for people unfamiliar with the film, and I mean, if you haven't seen it, don't do what I did and waste... I think it's only 80 minutes long, but don't even waste 80 minutes watching it. But it has this conceit that it's found footage, so that the opening screens are... You know, U.S. Department of Defense uh, item found in the area formerly known as Central Park or something. And towards the end of the movie, you see how the camera got left where it did. But it basically captures the run up to the Cloverfield attack, which is uh, a bunch of hipsters at a party, basically. Frankly, not being very sympathetic. You're not you're not that upset when things kind of go wrong for them. Um, you start to feel like a red state guy, you know, <laughs> wanting to see the coastal elites <laughs> get pummeled. But but so one of them has a, a girlfriend or a love interest who uh, is kind of marooned in like uptown. And so they decide as they, they see the giant monster um, and they see the looters and they see everything going wrong. But they decide to go uptown and try to rescue her, which, of course, doesn't go particularly well. But yeah, no, the found footage concept is pretty annoying. And this is like this is really punching down. But the acting in this that movie is is terrible. Oh, wow. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, by the way, that found footage conceit was also I mean, obviously, there had been found footage movies before, what? like uh, like Blair Witch Project or Cannibal Holocaust or stuff like well, what that. What was the but... one that what was the one that was made for $20,000? Paranormal Activity? Yeah, yeah, yeah that right. was around this time. But that also seems derived from like the 9-11 aesthetic, you know, that shaky cam, but seem to be tapping into that feeling of watching shaky Well, because that footage. is that is how a lot of people experience 9-11. If you, mm-hmm. if you turned on the major networks at the time, that's kind of what you were seeing, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, I don't know, it's just so strange to me that we as a culture wanted to deal with that trauma by reliving it through these monster and alien film, these joyless monster and alien films. Anyway, speaking of apocalyptic visions... The film we watched this week is the 2012 satire, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Come on down to the grand reopening of the Swallow Valley Mall. I'll be there. My best friend Tim Heidecker will be there. You're going to like what you see. Ooh, you're going to like the fake trees. Ooh, you're going to like all our new stores. Ooh, you're going to like meeting my new son, Jeffrey. I'm going to murder myself if you don't come down to my new fucking mall. Come on down to the grand reopening of the Swallow Valley Mall. My dad told me this is the coolest mall ever. You think you know more than my dad? Don't fucking come then. It's the grand reopening of the Swallow Valley Mall. It's just off Route 35 right here in historic Swallow Valley. So for those unfamiliar uh, with Tim and Eric, uh, who are they? They are the comedy duo of Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners will know them because our listeners are extremely online people. (laughs) Uh, But then some may not because uh, this is a very cultish duo. They are best known for their Adult Swim series, Tim and Eric Awesome Show Great Job, which ran in the 2000s for five seasons. And... It's a show that is sort of in the lineage, uh, let's say an evolution of from Monty Python's Flying Circus to Mr. Show to this, where it's a, a stream of consciousness, off the wall sketch show. But this one is heavily informed by the aesthetics of cultural detritus. 
So, you know, corporate training videos, motivational seminars, public access TV, local newscasts. They have often been branded with the descriptor anti-comedy in that their comedy isn't, it's not like traditionally there's a, a joke and a punchline and one, one way of, I think, of contextualizing Tim and Eric a bit further is, you know, uh, listeners, I guess, on our Patreon will know that we've sp- we spent some time with various YouTube vloggers, you know, uh, the, the Cool Duder being one of them, uh, Wet Movie is another one. These are guys that basically go out shopping for DVDs, and Will and I have been watching them for some years because we have a peculiar fascination with them. And the world that they kind of showcase is one where there's just such a high volume of stuff and, and culture has been producing so much stuff for so long that, you know, there are now stores that basically act as just kind of warehouses for all of the stuff. Yeah. All the old movies, all the paraphernalia that is produced on the back of movies. Tim and Eric can kind of be seen in that in that light. All these things Will mentioned, you know, the, the corporate training videos, the motivational seminars. Consider how much bigger the volume of all that kind of stuff is. Just the volume of kind of image and information that exists now that didn't even a few decades ago <laughs> and and what they do is they kind of are scooping right at the bottom yeah um and they're drawing drawing on that uh, a quote that tim heidecker gave to mark Marin on his podcast he said you have to all be on the same page that we're all fucked and most things are garbage most products whether it's movies or tv shows or books it's mostly garbage and patronizing to us There's a good article in Film Comment from a few years ago by Nick Pinkerton about one of Tim Heidecker's other projects, Decker. The opening paragraph of it goes, What we call popular culture is, to a certain extent, a collective delusion in which prognosticators, using sheer guesswork, assign importance to the herd movement of audiences and critics as being indicative of trends. Special priority is attributed to properties whose only measurable intrinsic worth, putting aside the intangible that is quality, is the financial investment that's been made in them. All of this ineffably influenced by the shadowy machinations of PR. As I write, the day's pseudo-event is the hashtag Star Wars Celebration livestream, whipping up anticipation for a trailer for the forthcoming Star Wars movie, the seventh in the franchise's history. And then he goes on to say, Two weeks ago, another number seven in a franchise, Furious 7, was grounds for panegyrics and pièces de pensée. At Salon, for example, an essay by holidaying television critic Sonia Saraya identified the Furious films as, quote, diametrically opposed to detached, blasé, hipster irony, unquote. A sort of Voltron super straw man, if there ever was one. And Pinkerton goes on to talk about how Tim and Eric are kind of masters of that blasé, hipster irony. And uh, they exist in a world that is telling us that we're always living in the most golden of all possible golden ages, you know? Even while everything around us is just totally dilapidated and decadent and gilded. Exactly. And they're so far only feature film together. Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie is one of the bleakest visions I've ever seen, comedy or otherwise. Yeah, so I guess we should try to describe the plot of the movie. I mean, it is... It's not quite a series of sketches, but it, but I mean, there is, there is a kind of a plot, but it does have, I guess, this stream of consciousness quality to it. Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim star as versions of themselves. As the movie opens, they have just spent a billion dollars on a movie which is supposed to star Johnny Depp, but actually stars a Johnny Depp impersonator and was only three minutes long. And the billion dollars was invested by the sinister head of a large multinational entertainment conglomerate, Tommy Schlang, played with gusto by Robert Loja. Loja sues Tim and Eric for the billion dollars that they spent, which they spent on such frivolities as a, a diamond suit and, uh, and uh, Johnny Depp, who turned out to be a Johnny Depp impersonator. And to pay back Tommy Schlang, they see an ad on TV, an opportunity to take over a mall in the Midwest, a dilapidated mall run by Will Ferrell. I think we can all agree that a derelict mall is a is a powerful cultural signifier. Yeah, like a, a, a derelict site of consumption, just a yeah, just a warehouse for all that stuff we were talking about. And you know, it's interesting. I think you know we're old enough to both have experiences with like malls that have degraded over the years. Oh yeah, tell tell me, what was your local mall growing up? Oh, well, I mean, there were a few local malls in in my immediate vicinity, and 
Etobicoke. Okay, we didn't uh, all grow up in a big metropolis, Will. Don't rub it in. Uh, so, you know, of course, there were there were the good malls like Square One and <laughs> Sherway Garden. But then there was uh, Woodbine Mall right. in Rexdale. And there was also the Albion Mall in Rexdale. And these were malls that, like, you can tell a lot by a community by its malls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they became much more visibly working class mm-hmm. uh, during the times that I was there. And the way you would talk about malls, everyone knew, oh, that's the... That's the bad mall. And it wasn't so much the mall itself. It was just like the community, the clientele, right? I'm not saying this to endorse it. It's right, just right. like we all know that that's how people talk about it. Well, malls. there's like the gentrified mall and the non-gentrified mall. Yeah, exactly. Right. It really is a digression from the movie. But uh, as Will was talking just now, uh, I started thinking about the Jackson Square Mall in Hamilton. Not the main mall I, I grew up in because I didn't grow up in Hamilton, but but one that I became intimately familiar with during the four years I lived there. So Jackson Square used to be, I mean, it's right in downtown Hamilton, which has economically struggled uh, over the past 25 years, it's it's kind of rebounding now, but it's economically struggled because you know Hamilton's big industry was steel, and there are plenty of listeners in parts of the American Midwest and and elsewhere in Canada who can definitely identify with this and will have will have witnessed something similar. But so the steel industry uh, lost a lot of jobs in Hamilton, and what happened is very similar to what's happened in a lot of other towns of of the same size built on manufacturing where the downtown kind of gets hollowed out. You know, I once visited Lansing, Michigan. I don't know what its prior industry was. I mean, Michigan obviously made a lot of cars back in the day, but the downtown was like just complete, like a ghost town. I remember walking past a, uh, a bookstore where they had some novelist or something who was doing a book signing and the novelist was just sitting nervously with no one in the store and the, and the proprietor like shuffling around anxiously outside looking at us because we're the only people that had passed in an hour Mm -hmm. so downtown hamilton uh, not quite like that always plenty of people walking around but jackson square had you know had once been kind of the main mall in hamilton and it increasingly became you know the kind of place where you know there was a whole wing of it that basically couldn't keep anything open Mm. and then you'd kind of walk through there and then you'd get to a bit where it was just payday lenders and dollarama and those kind of stores, I'm not really sure what you call them. What's the name for a store where they just sell like golden Buddha statues and kind of Elvis oh, heads? Yeah, you know, the kind yeah. of place, like a stuff store. Yeah. Um, you know, and then and then there was like the part of the mall that just had, you know, the, the typical mall things. Yeah, it's interesting that malls developed their own class systems, like geographic. It had a, it had a class know. system within the mall. Yeah. And, and uh, I briefly uh, worked at this mall back when I was in telemarketing, which is something I don't think I've talked about. Oh my um, God. But parts of this movie hit me really really hard for this reason. <laughs> have I, I, haven't, I haven't really talked about this, no, have I? No. So, so I was a telemarketer right after high school because I decided to put off going to university for a year, you know, to find myself and, and do interesting things. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'm an adult now. So what do you do? You got to get a job. So I went around and I handed out a bunch of resumes, ran into some high school acquaintances in the mall uh, they told me, oh, yeah, there's this place called Protocol, and you could make up to $17 an hour, which was a king's ransom at the mm-hmm. time to me. So uh, I didn't really, it was called Protocol Direct Marketing. And uh, I knew that it had something to do with telephones, but I didn't really understand what it was. Mm-hmm. So I got an interview there. I remember not sleeping the night before. Uh, I bought a suit, like, or my rather, my parents bought me a suit. Um, <laughs> I was so nervous. I like could not sleep for this, for this job interview at the mall then by the way the the protocol was in the saddest part of the mall of course because it had to be and uh yeah it was really nervous about this job interview but guess what nailed it i got through the uh the mock telemarketing scenario with, with flying colors and then i went into training now the training was paid and actually i think the turnover rate um in this line of work is so high that i think only about 60 percent of the people actually moved on from the training to the actual job like you could make whatever 750 an hour for like two days maybe half days just to do the training Mm -hmm. and the department i was put in was for discover card and i mean we don't have discover card in canada i assume they outsource this to canada to get around like state do not call lists (laughs) and uh i mean this was the worst thing it was the worst job i've ever had to do there was a I've never told the story about the strawberry farm, which was also pretty bad, but I'll have to save that for another podcast. So so you could probably maybe hook me up with the telemarketing industry if things don't work out. So guess what? It turned out it, it didn't pay $17 an hour. Um, there, there, was, there was a kind of a commission system, but nobody really made... There was one guy who claimed to have made 
um, you know, something like sixteen fifty an hour or something. And he actually he had a special nickname, and he got his own. Oh, the the cubicles were just like at, you you just you would take whatever cubicle was available. But this guy, you know, he was so successful, he got his own cubicle that had like a piece of paper on it that just had his like nickname He's written the out machine. on it. Machine. He yeah, it was like he was the king of the of the oh, Discover is, Card wing of the. T- this is <laughs> and, this is like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Yeah yeah. But- yeah bleaker <laughs> so so let me tell you about what we were selling or not selling as i initially thought because no one really explained that these were sales calls it was just you were kind of given a script i mean it was painful so you're mostly calling the discover card as, as i understand it is kind of it's a lot of places don't actually accept it because it's a it's a credit card you get if you have a low credit rating so it's calling a lot of fairly low income americans to try to hawk a feature on the card called payment protection, which was kind of a, I guess, an insurance type system where basically if various things happen, you could not cancel your payments, just just delay having to make them. So if there was a death in the family or something like that. And I mean, every single call was like physically unpleasant. I hated it. I hated it so much, even though I was 17 and I had this, this you know, can do at it. Like I'm going to do, I'm going to nail this, you know, first job out of high school gonna nail this it was so so unpleasant um i remember figuring out these elaborate ways that you could kind of like have to do a few less calls so uh it's like i mastered the art of walking to the bathroom really really slowly um, but not so slowly that any you know any of the people on the floor would would notice i figured out that there was a thing where you could kind of glitch the microphone by like holding down the the button or something and you could get an extra 30 seconds of just nice pleasant mental space this is horrifying um, <laughs> and the other thing is you, there was a little room in the call center somewhere no one knew where it was and from this room they monitored they monitored the conversations randomly so you never knew oh my god so it was like um bentham's panopticon right where if, if people are familiar with bentham's design for for this prison where there'd just be a big tower in the middle that could see into all the cells mm-hmm. And uh, you don't actually know if, if the guards are watching you, but because they could be, you internalize like the fact that, that you just start acting as if you're always being surveilled. And there are various rules that if you broke them, you could be fired. So you were required to make multiple rebuttals before letting someone hang up. Um, so oh even so, so, you know, because of course, like you're calling these people and it's like, hi, I'm from Discover Card. And they're just like, please, you know, go away. We're having dinner or someone in the family just died like we don't want this kind of call and then you you are you were required as part of your employment to say something like but ma'am you don't even know what this product does for you um and and you could get in really big trouble if you didn't if you didn't do that and this is for the minimum wage at the time which i think was like just over seven bucks yeah. an hour the, the word orwellian gets overused i but... mean it, it was it, it was it was really bad and the turnover rate was unbelievable like there were maybe 30 or 40 people I trained with. And by the end of the second week, I think there were three people left. Holy shit. So these places just thrive on this constant churn. And there were, you know, a handful of people that for whatever reason just found the job tolerable. And they there was a little clique that had worked there for a few years. Um, there were a few more luckier people where they were part of the incoming call center department where, you know, people call and order a set of encyclopedias or whatever, which I imagine is pretty boring, but doesn't have quite the same, you know, visceral unpleasantness mm-hmm. to it. Anyway, I used to go to the food court in the center of the mall and uh, and spend kind of like two to three hours worth of my wages for the day on on lunch. But so yeah, I so mean, yeah, yeah, seven, sure. you know, seven dollars an hour. So you get like a a meal and a drink. I mean, maybe maybe two hour two hours of wages. But but I just remember those those lunches uh, just being such bliss compared to the awfulness of being on the phone. Anyway, after uh, I can't remember how long it was. If it was. I think I six or seven weeks, something like that, I lasted at this. And then I had this sleepless night where I was deciding like, you know, maybe I should go in, maybe I should, maybe I should go in and tell them I quit. And I, I couldn't, I was too, I was too nervous. So what I did is I just didn't go to work at all. And what was really funny is no one noticed or cared. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had another sleepless night and then I went in the next day and I told them, uh, I was so nervous and I just said, I, I can't. Can't work here anymore. I'm, I'm so sorry. Whatever, and they made me write a letter of resignation. <laughs> so I sat there and I wrote out this really elaborate, like, 
uh, letter of resignation. I'm pretty sure, you know, in retrospect, I could have just written, I, Luke Savage, you know, hereby resign my title as sales associate or whatever. But um, That's cool you got a title. <laughs> I actually don't even know if that was the title. I don't think they probably didn't use the word sales. I had, I had something, some title like that. It was, it, you know, it was probably something a little more like ebullient, like, you know, like team member or like, oh, you yeah. know. That's great because it's like a family. That's that's right. So yeah, I, I resigned and that that was done. Um, spent spent less time in the mall after that. Although there's a fun epilogue to the story, which is that I somehow discovered maybe a year later that like I just had never got claimed my last paycheck. <laughs> so I went in and, you know, got the equivalent of enough to buy like, I don't know, a two four or something, and <laughs> and that was that. Anyway, that was a rather long digression, but I realized I'd never told that story on no, the pod, it's a and that's story. one of the reasons why this movie kind of spoke to me because uh, the the mall is, I think, a very important site in in a lot of our our lives. This is what we do. This is who we are. We're Dobas PR. We're Dobas PR. We love what we do, and we love who we are. We're Dobas PR. We're Dobas PR. The mall is such an impersonal site. This movie, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie, has some stores in it. Like, there's one scene where you see this stand just in the middle of the mall. It's the tiniest stand. (laughs) It just has a bunch of hats on it. And it has a sign above it that says, L Hat. You know? (laughs) And it's it's a totally flavorless, you know, no history to this business and absolutely nothing, nothing thing that nobody could care about or be proud of. And they call it L Hat to add a little bit of flavor to it. It's like L Hat Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, elsewhere in the movie, two of the characters go to a, a bread restaurant. It's a oh, bre- a, a, I love that. A bread themed restaurant called Inbreadables. <laughs> Where the gimmick of it is that everything there is made out of bread. So like the napkins and the bowls and the, the cutlery. What I love about this is it's like that's only 15% more ridiculous than something that somebody would actually start where it's like, we're making everything out of carrots or all the desserts are made purely of kale. And then there'd be like a blog TO write up or something that would be like, <laughs> You know, we thought it sounded a little ridiculous, but it turns out it was kind of awesome. And they would have, like, steamrolled the neighborhood in order to do it. Like, they would have evicted some tenants. Yeah, uh, the, the whole thing would be, it would be in, like, a, a an exposed brick thing in, like, in the West End that used to house, like, a furniture manufacturing thing or something. And all the, all the detritus of the factory would be there, but it would be still there, but it would just be kind of window dressing as you're eating your, your meal consisting solely of kale. By the way, did you see that? in Bloordale right now there's going to be a Garfield themed pizza restaurant <laughs> well you'll be going obviously well, we'll probably be doing a live podcast from there on opening night <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm moving in actually <laughs> uh, but there is in Toronto imagine I'm imagining a Garfield restaurant where they just serve they just serve lasagnas and uh, and it's it's not open on Mondays and it's in an it's in an X factory <laughs> I'm not making this up folks by the way in Bloordale there's there's a storefront right now. It hasn't opened yet, but it's got a it's an officially licensed restaurant. And it's got a picture of Garfield. He's got a speech bubble above above him that said, "Here's the guy who turned me into a pizza." And then next to him is like this photo of this guy who's got a suit on. He looks like, you know, a 20-something entrepreneur. And he's got a speech <laughs> bubble coming out of his head and he says, "That's right, Garfield. I'm here to, you know, blah blah blah." He's the owner of the place. And the gimmick of it is you're going to get a pizza, a personal pizza that's shaped like Garfield's head. This is a 100%, swear to God, true thing that is opening in Toronto. (laughs) And by the way, uh, guys, we're not sponsored by this. When we talk about products or services on the show, we only talk about things that, you know, we use and we consume. So I I fully endorse this. Although it does sound like it's taking some liberties with the Garfield kind of canon. It because, should be lasagna. I mean, should, yeah. What does pizza? What did Garfield and pizza have to do with I each mean, other? Look, nobody. And where does nobody this, wants lasagna? Where does this businessman come from? What happened to John? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> judging by the the picture that's on front of the storefront right now, Garfield seems to respect this business owner much more than John. And you know that because he's an entrepreneur. That doesn't make sense either, because as we all know, Garfield's you know lazy and he doesn't have that kind of Protestant ethic yeah, required yeah, yes. to be an entrepreneur. You're right. If anything, he should admire John because John's a loser. <laughs> anyway, so Tim and Eric take over the Swallow Valley Mall. That might, I mean, that might as well be from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
they take over the Swallow Valley Mall and they rebrand themselves as marketing PR guys. They call their business Dobus PR, which is a shortened version of doing business. <laughs> Dobus PR. And there's this exquisite scene where they do like a presentation for the mall. They, they have like a they have a PowerPoint presentation where it's like the three keys to success, and then one of them just inexplicably is get rid of the wolf because the mall is so dilapidated that there are squatters. There's a whole like homeless community that lives there and there is a wolf that's terrorizing the mall (laughs) and the few businesses that exist in the mall are well for example my favorite scene in the movie actually is there's a guy who runs a used toilet paper business in the mall and this business has apparently been in his family for generations and they ask him how much business do you get from that oh it's more of a gourmet operation (laughs) And Tim and Eric come and they say, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to close this business. You're not meeting expectations. Uh, But you know what? We do have a job for you as the janitor of the mall. Uh, Do you want to take it? He's like, "Uh, yeah, sure. And then he's got a son there. And then Tim just sort of takes the son as his own. He's like, come and come and see what it means to be a successful business, you know, a real man. And within about 30 seconds, he's gone from being Uncle Tim to father. And he's demoted the dad to the status of uncle. And when I saw this movie for the first time in 2012, maybe this is a, a comment on how my own politics have shifted. I laughed all the way through the movie, but I left it feeling vaguely disquieted almost because the movie is is so relentlessly bleak. Uh, its bleakness extends to the things that are supposed to be our relief from this miserable world that we live in. Uh, love, friendship, family. You know, this scene with the guy who runs the toilet paper store, it's like his boss comes in and says, you know, it doesn't matter that this stupid business has been in your family for generations. We're just going to close it. And you're going to become the janitor now because what else are you going to do? And also your son belongs to me and, and I'm his dad. <laughs> exactly. And and what else are you going to do? Because it's either that or you're out on the street. Right. And I don't know, I think that is uh, such a relevant scene for the world we live in, you know, where increasingly your boss can just control your life. Your boss can tell you, you know, what to post and what not to post. People are working longer hours for less money. Uber and Lyft are now a thing. Yeah. Um, Listen, Reggie, after a few calculations here, it looks like your store isn't quite fit for the new Dobus brand. Sorry, Reg, we're gonna have to shut this boy down. It's been in the family for years. You know, the new Swallow Valley Mall is about fresh, clean, safe. You know what, Tim? There's an opening for head of janitorial, and I don't know Reggie's qualifications, but I feel like we could give him a shot. What do you think? Uh, well, um... You do the dust, you do the shine. We make a mess, you clean it up, that's the job. Okay, yeah. Great. Well, Reg, it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy over the next few weeks. Jeffrey, how about you tag along with us, and I could teach you a little bit about... What it's like to be a businessman around here. What it's like to be a real man. What it's like to be a real successful businessman. Huh? Sound good? Yes, sir. Oh, don't call me sir. Why don't you call me daddy? Say yes, daddy. Yes, daddy. Does that sound good to you, Uncle Reg? Yeah, okay. You're going to be my son? That's what I thought. Speaking of the things that are supposed to bring relief and joy to our lives... There is a love story of sorts in the movie, and and there's a, a love triangle that emerges of sorts. Uh, the other great scene of the movie is, I, w- I won't describe it, it's a back and forth between, you know, Tim and Eric uh, after a bad date. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the movie ends in a very bleak way where, you know, any momentum that's been built up from people's relationships, any sort of gesturing towards any kind of good, positive feeling is ultimately just like trodden on. Everybody is sort of expendable. (laughs) And so ultimately what the movie shows us is that we have no power and, you know, work is not virtuous in this world. Like there's the scene where they're giving the big motivational speech to everybody, where everybody just looks totally miserable. These are people who are running a store called El Hat. You know, aside from the toilet paper guy, nobody's working in this mall because they love it. They're working here because they have to, to survive. Yeah, almost everything is just hucksterism. And it's all undergirded by this kind of contrived attitude where everyone's supposed to think this is perfectly normal and be really excited about it. Pasting a smiley face on misery throughout. The hucksterism comes in various forms in the movie. A lot of the movie is a Hollywood satire, uh, but there's also kind of stupid like PR, motivational, entrepreneurial stuff. 
Zach Galifianakis is in the movie and he plays like a mystic guru type who Tim and Eric are paying $500,000 a week for. There's also that uh, the spiritual huckster who's hawking some kind of like somewhere between sort of Scientology and like goop, you know. Yeah, like some kind of a self-care ritual that's very vague and seems not at all scientific. And then when we finally find out what it is, it's really not at all scientific. (laughs) And something like that exists in this universe just to be like distraction from the absolute abject misery of your life. It's like, well, you know, the world is terrible. Maybe throw a bit of your faith into Shrim and and through the power of self-care, you can make, maybe you could relieve a bit of the misery. You know, we talked about it already on the uh, Pumping Irony episode, but uh, so much of the kind of, you know, YouTube fitness community that I've become weirdly immersed in, you know, it's it's right on the edge, a lot of it with the kind of self-improvement, self-care stuff. And a lot of it is like, frankly, very toxic because it's all about like, you got a, you got a problem in your life. Stop complaining. Stop making yourself the victim. It's on you to solve this. You have the power to solve this. Mm-hmm. Change your attitude. Adjust your expectations. Be grateful for what you do have. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 all, it's all that stuff. And there's a huge amount of that in like the huckster characters of this film. Absolutely. I think there's a deep moral seriousness to the Tim and Eric universe, which sounds like an odd thing to say. But there's this question that they're preoccupied with of what is authentic. The worlds they create, both in this movie and on TV, are kind of wall-to-wall phony. You know, co-opting these highly contrived aesthetics from, on the one hand, Hollywood movies, and on the other hand, uh, corporate and PR and cable access amateur stuff. So these guys sort of look around them and they see this whole world in which media from top to bottom has perverted everything sacred. Everything's just a commodity. And the only place that they can find authenticity is through extreme inauthenticity. So like David Letterman, they're very interested in taking these very amateur people like Craigslist actors and uh, strange buskers, people who are never supposed to be on TV and putting them on TV. And, you know, obviously there are some kind of moral questions associated with that. But on the other hand, when you see these people in their shows, like David Liebhart or Richard Qual, we see Richard Qual do an incredible stand-up act in oh. this movie about bread. <laughs> um, there is a humanity to these people. It's the kind of the only glimmer of humanity that you see in the Tim and Eric worlds. And it's a humanity in the disparity between their ambition and their achievement. Something I think is very similar to Tim and Eric that you just uh, reminded me of, or it's, it's, it's doing something aesthetically similar, all of those wonderful Vic Berger videos and vines, you know, a lot of which are about politicians, you know, uh, all those great Jeb Bush moments where... I love keeping our country safe. <laughs> then, the, then the tires on the car screech. Jeb um, is a mess. <laughs> Um, but but the ones I was thinking of in particular were the ones of Jim Baker, that 1980s televangelist, yeah. who would who if people aren't familiar with him, go watch right now. Just type in on YouTube. You could type in Jim Baker. I would suggest uh, you know for the for the for the for the full version, Jim Baker, Vic Berger, and get some of that that content. But so Jim Baker was this guy who I mean just such a transparent huckster, sort of moral majority era Christian TV, and his business model was quite literally selling you food that you could eat during the rapture. So uh, and and he and you know he was he's doing these kind of telethons where he's showing you for like a thousand dollars you can get you know whatever months worth of rice, and then he's just shoveling the rice like into a bathtub huh. with an actual shovel. Again, t- Tim and Eric don't need to make any of this stuff up. This is just what the culture is, and yet we yeah. pretend that it's not. Uh, by the way, that just reminds me, this is a digression, but my favorite televangelist was Robert Tilton, who he used to like uh, sell his handkerchief that he'd wiped his brow with or stuff like that. And if you bought <laughs> it, um, you would be guaranteed success in life. And it, like, if you gave money to him, you, things would work out for you. It was that big a fraud. And like, he would have these commercials where it was like, I gave Reverend Chilton $10,000 and I got my dream job. Like, actually. So it's just like the religious version of all those kind of things that were basically pyramid schemes that Donald Trump would, would flog or whatever, so, you know, in, in, in an earlier era of Donald Trump. And, you know, there's... It's like, I bought a boat after one year. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great scene in this movie where they first see Will Ferrell on TV and he has this commercial where he's saying, come run my mall, you'll make a billion dollars. Don't you want to make a billion dollars? You'll get a billion dollars for sure. And they keep cutting to people like janitors who are like, 
boy, I sure love this billion dollars. Like, <laughs> overdubbed. <laughs> One thing I really liked is just kind of slid in as, as a superfluous detail at the end of the film is they realize, of course, that they do have a billion dollars worth of diamonds that they, yeah. just, they just have. So the entire plot of the film was unnecessary. <laughs> they could have just sold the diamonds. I also like, uh, th- this is a bit of a spoiler. Uh, please watch the movie. But this is a bit of a spoiler for the end where... Uh, they show the movie for Steven Spielberg, who's, of course, played by a Steven Spielberg impersonator. <laughs> and he says, as Steven Spielberg, I approve of this movie. And let me just say, this is the best movie ever made. <laughs> and I sort of like the use of Steven Spielberg as this, this like disembodied, like just th- just this symbol of Hollywood, <laughs> de- totally dehumanized. <laughs> So this movie was not particularly well-received, is that right? No, the reviews in general were uh, pretty negative. The reception certainly didn't extend beyond the Tim and Eric fan base. Uh, Roger Ebert notably gave it half a star. (laughs) And for the most part, if you look at what the reviews were on Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of the, the, I guess, mainstream press who were presumably unfamiliar with Tim and Eric— they sort of regarded it as if it were like a bad SNL sketch movie. They probably just thought it was a gross out kind of edgelord thing, right? Yeah, and it, it sort of amazes me because, I don't know, e- even though I wasn't fully on board with it the first time I saw it, um, you know, it was 2012 and we had an election year coming up and I was really hoping Obama would get reelected. <laughs> I think to really appreciate it, you've kind of got to fully embrace the dark side. You've got you've to fully embrace the fact that like we are in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the vision we deserve. Well, I think that that to me is is kind of the basic, I don't know what to call it, like metapolitical cultural chasm right now. That's kind of a convoluted way of putting it. But you compare something like this to that SNL sketch the day after the election where it was just someone in character. Is it Kate McKinnon in yeah. character as Hillary Clinton just singing hallelujah to like a sad piano mm. accompaniment? Irony and earnestness are two kind of basic poles in comedy. And I think just as cultural and institutional liberalism has has doubled down on the idea that even as things are terrible, even as Donald Trump is in the the White House, fundamentally they're fine. We just have to get the bad person out. Mm -hmm. And so lib comedy ends up just being this, you know, how dare you, sir, or, you know, this kind of very saccharine, you know, celebration of American institutions or just ideologically incoherent. Whereas the irony that I think now tends to be associated more with the left, as you say, embraces the darkness. It's like, no, things are really bad. There are systemic problems. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you can deal with that and express it through art is, is with irony. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're kind of like getting at the root of what that disquieted feeling I had when I saw it the first time was. It's a movie that's so relentlessly ironic and it's so kind of kind of destructive of everything it sees. I think I, I remember watching it and thinking, well, okay, smarty pants, like, what's your solution to all this? Mm-hmm. Which is a strange reaction to me in retrospect. Like, I watch it now and, you know, the movie feels like bracingly honest to me. And it, it no longer feels like this kind of snide smarty pants movie. It feels like there's there's something human about it where it's like, yes, this world is terrible, and our only defense mechanism against it is to laugh at it. And I think that also speaks to one of the kind of basic misunderstandings, you know, culturally between, you know, if you want liberals and the left to be a little reductive about it, because I think that I imagine a lot of mainstream critics watching this basically did think it was a kind of gross out edgelord thing, and they were not able to really detect the irony in it. And they just Mm -hmm. thought it was like, I don't know, Team America or, you know, like in that kind of... Freddy got fingered. So, yeah, exactly. Which something. I like, by the way. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, something something like that. And I think in, in a lot of political and cultural debates today, you see something very similar where I think to a lot of liberals, when they see the left being ironic, what they think it is, is just the it's mockery of, of social concern as opposed to criticism of kind of what we on the left think is is actually kind of shallow and superficial social concern that is often not really concern at all, Mm -hmm. or even if it's Mm -hmm. earnestly intended, is just simply not adequate to the task at hand. So like saying, how dare you, sir, to Donald Trump is not adequate to the task at hand. Or, you know, I was just on yet another podcast talking about the West Wing. And, uh, you know, the West Wing, of course, has had yet another great renaissance during the Trump era. 
And it's, it serves as an actual reference point that a lot of people use when they're talking about the depredations of the Trump presidency. I've experienced some reactions to my own you know, writing about it or my own maybe slightly mean tweets about it, where it's clear that people don't actually register that I'm making a, that I have a political critique of it and that I have an alternative to it. They just think, well, the, the, the characters on the show are the good guys. And this is what the politics in the real America is like. And we're just appealing to that in this, you know, as, as an antidote to this kind of darker America. Whereas for me, you know, I've always found this, this tendency uh, that some people have, this constant appeal to fictional worlds and kind of fantasy worlds as a direct reaction to the Trump presidency, I find very, I mean, to be polite about it, I think it's inadequate. Oftentimes, I think it's something a lot worse than that. There was a, a journalist who I, who I quoted in my current affairs article a few years ago on the West Wing, who on the night of Donald Trump's election, their reaction was to tweet, I, well, I'm going to be you know, holding my West Wing DVDs a lot closer tonight or something. And kissing them. To me, that reaction doesn't really convey the gravity of, yes. of Donald Trump winning an election as earnestly intended as it, as it may have been. Um, and anyway, so I think that is one of the basic divides between liberals and people on the left today culturally. You see it in the cultural paraphernalia that's kind of popular in each and I imagine that that has something to do with what the, the kind of mixed reactions to this film were. Are you a man or possibly two men who need to make a billion dollars? Come and run my mall. We're having hard times. We need your ideas. Everybody needs a billion. Come and take over the Swallow Valley Mall and Pizza Court. It's easy. Not hard. I said it's easy. Not hard. There's never been an easier way to make a billion dollars. It's easy. And here's the fun part. It's easy. What's the matter? You don't want to make a billion dollars? My day wasn't going good until I put on these... Billion dollars? Man, I love this billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving away a billion, billion dollars! But you gotta run my mom. So we were talking about Roger Ebert before. He's come up a few times on the, on the show. And there's a new segment we're introducing called Roger and Me. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I think we've mil we've milked the Michael Moore idioms uh, a little much on this podcast. But something I've wanted Will to talk about for a while on Mike is an article he wrote, uh, I guess, a few years ago, which is a favorite of mine, which was you went through Roger Ebert's Zero Star reviews, um, which if there are only sort of 50 of them or yeah, something. Yeah, uh, thereabouts. And, you know, Roger Ebert, I have a complicated relationship with him because I spent more time reading him than certainly any other critic, mm -hmm. which is strange because like, I certainly don't think he's one of the best critics. He's best enjoyed as an appreciator of cinema. Yeah. Kind and of, that's kind of the, the his limit. Yeah. He's an ambassador. Mm -hmm. um, you know, his great movies reviews, for instance, are like a good kind of entry point. And he, his prose was very conversational and his, his taste was, you know, reasonable. Yeah. Uh, kind of upper middle brow. Yeah. Uh, mainstream. He and, likes plenty of good movies. Yeah. But when you look at his zero star reviews, the zero star ones are the ones that he regards as, you know, not just bad, but immoral somehow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly there are movies that he gave zero stars that I think are not good. But I definitely think like you could create a really good like 10 or 15 film retrospective of like culturally interesting films that he gave zero stars whether it's Andy Warhol's I, a Man, or Ken Russell's The Devils, Africa Audio, or Mandingo. Uh, John Waters' Pink Flamingos is a very interesting review that he gave because he sort of approaches Pink Flamingos as if it were just sort of a carnival freak show. And he seems totally blind to the fact that it's a radically queer movie. Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert doesn't really have much of a camp bone in his body. And so he's kind of not able to relate to what John Waters is and sort of the radical agenda of a John Waters movie. John Waters' project as sort of a radical queer filmmaker is the idea that everything that society deems is ugly is actually beautiful and everything that society deems beautiful is ugly. And that doesn't seem to occur to him. He also gives Freddie Got Fingered zero stars, which <laughs> I, I find... You strongly object to. ...baffling. And I, I feel like... Ebert's a bellwether, and you can kind of see him evolve over the years, and he represents sort of the limit of what a reasonably educated, upper-middle-class, liberal, white guy is able to take in America at that time. Uh, you know, he's not somebody you go to for the against-the-grain take. He didn't give Tim and Eric's billion-dollar movie zero stars, but he gave it half a star. 
It's, a, it's not that good a review. He says, I feel I failed Tim and Eric. They've gathered a cult following by doing comedy sketches that were deliberately bad. And now they've made a movie that is more of the same for 92 minutes. And it must have taken them a great deal of work to maintain their low standard. By not finding even one moment of Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie to be slightly funny, have I let down the side? Yes. Later he says, the purpose of a cult is exclusion. If you're not in the cult, you are by definition lacking some essential quality shared by its members. Those inside the cult can feel privileged, even gifted, by their ability to get it. I was willing to get it. I was sincerely prepared, but at the end of this experience, I concluded there was nothing to get. Later on, he says, Tim and Eric blow their fortune by making a short subject, which they believe starred Johnny Depp. The fake Johnny Depp actually looks a little like Johnny Depp. Even a non-cult member like me knows that it would have been funnier if the Johnny Depp impersonator had been played by John C. Riley in character as Taquito. And I disagree with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't get what, it. What's funny is that he's a Johnny Depp impersonator. Yeah, you know? they just put in the movie. That's the essential tone of the review. And I, and I think it's interesting that Ebert doesn't clue into the dystopian aspects of the film. This movie that's sat at a dilapidated mall with these two horrible people running it and these businesses that are under their thumbs. Like, I, I understand not finding it funny, but how can you kind of not get that there's something going on there? So what you're saying is Ebert needs a class analysis? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I do like Roger Ebert, though. You let's, can't, you can't not like. Let's him. have, let's have some materialism in normie film criticism. Is that too much to ask? Now watch this drive. Well, I'm looking at the world now, and it's going insane. Thinking about checking out, can't do it again. But I know just who I am, how strong I can be. And I know I'm the only one who can help us be free, This country's yours and mine. It's the home of the brave and free. It's the place for you and me. It's only a matter of time till we get things back on track. Our values are under attack now. And the bad guys get the benefits Rest of us pay their way Patriots are under attack Just for having their say While I'm riding down Freedom Road Agents on my tail You wave a flag on Christmas Day They'll throw you in jail Hey!